You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. How boring it must be to be immortal. Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We are so thrilled to welcome Luna McNamara to the podcast. Luna is the best-selling author of Psyche and Eros, and we are so excited to sit down with her and discuss her novel, Breathing Fresh Life into the Classic Myth. Welcome, Luna. Thank you so much. I am a huge fan of the podcast, so I'm delighted to be here. Uh, PDA Lions has made it fully into my vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> PDA Lions all the way. Yes. <laughs> that is a Jenny Williamson special. <laughs> like, you know, you see two people making out on a bench. You're like, oh, those PDA Lions. They just can't stop themselves. Our friend Liv will also do um, when she was telling us about Chiron, the, the training center, how he has two dongs so we just call him double dong chiron every time she uh says it she's like i have to point out that ancient history fangirl came up with that yeah but i gotta give credit where credit's due just a man with a horse body attached to his back and the first thing we focus on is how many penises does this man have like that is very on brand for us <laughs> yeah, like, setting you up for that i mean it's gonna be right there in your eyeline so true <laughs> so what drew you to the myth of psyche and eros so it was always one of my favorite myths. I first heard a version of it around the fire at summer camp. And I was really intrigued by a love story where the woman was really the hero, where she's the one who does the labors, where she's the one who undertakes the descent to the underworld. Um, and also just the image of these two lovers in a dark room where they... They can't see each other's faces. They don't really know who the other is, but they start to fall for each other anyway. Was very, very intriguing to me. And as I dove into the actual sources and like actually read The Golden Ass by Lucius Apuleius, which is where we come from the myth, uh, I noticed it was a little bit different from the, the version that had been related to me. I think in ways that kind of, I, I think kind of betray Apuleius's own cultural biases. Like there's a lot of crying and hand-wringing on Psyche's part when she's first brought to Eros's house in the source text. He has sex with her that night. Um, and there's this phrase about the disembodied voices in the house tending the corpse of the new bride's virginity, which is like pretty gross. Oh, boy. <laughs> right? Right? Like, there is, you can write a thesis on, like, all the ways that's fucked up. Like, the virginity is separate from her. They're tending the corpse of that. But, like, what about her? What about the breathing person there? No, doesn't matter. Yeah, so there's, like, some really kind of fucked up stuff in the myth. Um, just plug for the Sarah Rudin translation, because that's my favorite. But... As I was reading through it, I was kind of grappling with like, okay, I still like this myth. There are still parts that are really compelling, like the labors and the descent to the underworld is still the same. 
And there are these other moments, even in the source text, where Psyche shows this incredible strength of character. But I was kind of thinking, like, what happens if I reimagine this? What happens if I twist these little details? And what does it mean for the arc of the story? And so in 2018, I started writing a very short version of it that was like kind of a hot mess. But it's like, you know, I wish I had more time to work on this, but I'm working full time. I have a lot of things to do in my life. And then a monkey's paw finger curled and the pandemic hit. And I was living alone in a one bedroom apartment. I actually got laid off. So I suddenly had nothing but time. And I looked at this little file on my computer and was like, well, let's see what happens if I keep diving into this. Let's see if I dig into the nature of the characters more, what crops up for me. And in the in the earlier drafts, it was really Psyche's character that came to the fore. And my editors were like, hey, maybe consider like you're having half of this narrated by Eros. Can you can you give a little more for him? And I started really digging into the work of Anne Carson, who wrote Eros the Bittersweet. It's it's a pretty good book. Like Anne Carson is just poetry incarnate. Like she's fascinating. And Anne Carson hones in on this Greek term that's used to refer to Eros throughout the poems of Sappho, throughout some other sources, which is glucopikron, which is sweet bitter. And in that order, not bittersweet, sweet bitter. And that to me pointed to this really interesting, contradictory, mischievous, zigging when you expect him to zag sort of character. And so that's something I honed in on when drafting the novel. It's such an interesting term, too, because, you know, all of love sort of starts off sweet and then gets bitter, you know. And it's such an interesting dynamic to have the god of love or erotic love or whatever you want to call our good friend Eros. You hope it always starts off sweet and doesn't go bitter, but, you know. Yeah, you could, could it just be sweet all the time? You hope it starts off sweet. Like, this is the ancient Greeks, right? <laughs> Exactly. And there is really this idea among the ancient Greeks and Romans as well of love is a curse. Like love is, it can be very unpleasant. Like you sweat, you can't sleep, you don't want to eat, you just think of this person. It's really interesting how it's portrayed because we've looked at like ancient Roman sources where Pompey, for example, was laughed at universally because of how much he loved his wives. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's really interesting. Like just the the horror of love to the ancient Romans and Greeks. It's like I not I don't disagree necessarily as a single person. Yeah, the Greco-Roman love spells fascinate me, the agoge spells which are like we have some material evidence for and they're kind of horrific. Like they're very much like I am sending the spirit to grab the heart and liver of this person I love and they'll set them on fire and torture them. And it's like, oh my God, that's someone you love and you're doing this magic on them? It's sort of horrific. So much of magic was just curses, you know? It was just love curses. It was all love hexes because like, I think when you don't have any power in society, which a lot of women did not, like your only power is through that seduction, that love which you hope your partner has for you. And if that goes away, you have nothing. And so you have to like really grab them by the short hairs and force them to do your will. But it's, yeah, that's that's something that's fascinating. It's like, I have this fascinated revulsion with ancient love spells because they're so horrific. Like sometimes they involve animal torture. But there are also, in terms of the material culture, there are some pictorial representations of Eros and Psyche, like, really torturing each other. Dr. Regina, who specializes in the myth, she's noticed some of these, but I wanted to uh, shape a love story that that kind of coercion and violence really wasn't a part of it. Um, And think about how these two individuals who are very different, each had their own, own strengths, eventually came together and changed because of each other but not for each other i was gonna say it is interesting that psyche you know there's there's two mortal women who fall in love with gods who become goddesses and it's just her and ariadne and you don't really see that the other way around it's interesting 
to me. And they both, like, love their wives, you know. You don't get too many bad stories about them, which is kind of nice. Yeah, they're both, like, kind of wife guys. <laughs> you have a degree in women in world religion. How did that degree play into your research for this novel? Absolutely, yeah. So I had initially been on a trajectory to become a professor. Thought I was going to be a professor of world religions. I also, I, I use that very, very broadly. I wanted to study everything. I also had this very intense interest in, especially the ancient Greeks, uh, less so the Romans. Sorry, Romans. We've been told by Emma Salden that you have to pick a side, either Romans or Greeks. <laughs> it's like a it's like a football sort of thing. <laughs> the Greeks, there's this curiosity and striving, and I don't know. I just feel like the Romans are kind of colonists. Not that the Greeks weren't. I don't know. But I, I mean, I've always been a huge nerd. I've always loved reading history, languages, and also just people as well. So I was initially on that academic path, but also my approach to knowledge was very much like, I want to hyper-focus on one area and then jump to something else. And in academia, you really, you have to pick one thing and you make that your um, your little molehill that you defend at all costs. So that was a little bit at odds with the way I like to do things. And then also, academia is kind of a dumpster fire. Uh, it's very strange to organize. You have to move where tenure is, which can be very difficult. There's also now a lot of downsizing of departments that universities don't see as lucrative or prestigious. So I started shifting away from that, but I also had all of these research skills I had been trained in. I had this body of knowledge I had accumulated, and I found a place for that in my writing, really, where I had this background to start shaping the worlds and the worldviews, and also just a sense of the the events and the arc of history and social organization. So I started folding that into my novels more, um, and especially in thinking about Psyche and Eros, like I had a bit of a background in Greek language and philosophy. I wanted to incorporate some of that into the novel. For example, the novel starts out with three different Greek words for love. And there is there's some controversy around that. I did uh, popularly, there's a fourth term, storge, that I decided to eliminate, largely because of a fight in my ancient Greek class years ago, where we concluded that storge is really, it's better translated as duty or obedience rather than love. That sounds not fun. <laughs> I know, right? But it's it's often used in terms of like how one relates to the tyrant of a city or um, I think wives to their husbands. So I was like, I don't view that as love. So I eliminated it from the the beginning of the novel. Being a novelist instead of an academic was a lot of fun because with, with academia, you do have to really hew to the sources. You have to represent things accurately, like you're a scholar, you're not an artist. Whereas with writing more broadly, it's, I get to make these twists. I get to make these turns. I get to say like, well, yeah, in the source text, this is how it was. But for the sake of this novel, I want to twist things a little bit and represent them differently. Yeah, I totally relate to that because the novel I'm writing about Alaric of the Visigoths is completely different than the way he was in real life. And I take things from history, but I don't hew to the history. I just kind of make it my own thing, which I guess I'm like a little bit reluctant to call it a historical romance, you know? But also that's the fun of art is you can make these twists and turns. You can reimagine a history that speaks to your soul more. Exactly. Like, what if this person from history who was probably not at all like this is in fact exactly how I think about him in my fantasy world based on all these quotes of things that he said? You know, like, what if it's just that great? And then I can just go from there. Like, I don't have to be tied to what was probably the truth. What my um my US editor has noticed, she's like, you don't necessarily represent things as they are, but as they could be. And I think that speculative, creative space, I think that in the end opens a lot more doors than just a narrow regurgitation of history. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's definitely, you know, I also love really straight historical stuff that takes what we know and breathes life into it. Like, I definitely am not degrading or trying to devalue that. But just as a writer and artist myself, I really like the freedom of giving yourself permission. In your novel, is Alaric, is he with uh, Gallia Placidia? No, that's actually in the in the history. It wasn't Alaric. It was Atolf, who was his brother-in-law, who um, kidnapped Gala Placidia. And there's an interpretation that they were in love. There's also an interpretation that they were definitely not in love. And this was just a horrible kidnapping. Seems like Helen of Troy all over again. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, she has a really fascinating story. We covered her in one of our one of our first episodes in our first arc, you know, he dies fairly shortly afterwards. And then she goes back and marries this Roman guy who she hated. And then he dies. And then she rules by herself for a while. So I guess it works out for her. (laughs) Not as bad as it could be. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. The myth of Psyche and Eros, uh, Cupid and Psyche to the Romans, is a later one, right? It's chronicled by mostly Roman sources. It's in Apuleius. Is it in the Metamorphosis as well? I don't think so. I think the the one that we have is um, the Golden Ass. Yeah. Um, what was the process like researching this myth and finding this, you know, very Greek story, this Greek myth in a later Roman source? Did you find any other sources that mentioned Psyche and Eros, any Greek ones, or was it just this one Roman source? So in terms of textual sources, it's really the only one we get it from is Lucius Apuleius, the golden ass, which um, he lived in the second century of the common era. He was from North Africa. He actually kind of reminds me of Hamilton from the musical of that name, where like was sort of a, a big fish in a small pond, very in love with his own wit, but had a very interesting life. Like he ended up marrying this wealthy widow and who was um, the mother of a friend and ended up being put on trial for black magic because it's like, how did you get this wealthy widow to fall in love with you? I don't know. He's a young toy boy. <laughs> like, Let's think about this. I know, right? Like, like she wouldn't be into that. He's giving her attention. He's young. He's maybe handsome. I don't know. Yeah, he's young, handsome, smart. Like, why, you know, when there's when there's the family fortune involved, you know, things could get a little dicey. Well, that's because women are not allowed. Like women, like we just talked to um, Emma Southern, who wrote A Rome of One's Own. And like, there is just a lot of horrors in what happened to women in like the Roman Empire. And this idea that a woman got to choose her husband is wild like who is the woman who um it was your favorite lady jenny who she had like a family fortune and they weren't going to let her have it because there was no man to stand up for her it kind of goes along with that you know like the the idea that like if a woman inherited this money um and she had no sort of male person to like essentially look after her like she went into like a conservatorship kind of thing so i can see like this 
fear with this young boy. It wasn't that it was a conservatorship. It was that anybody could come in and sort of claim to be her family if they had the same last name, for example. And then it could get tied up in the courts whether or not they were now in control of this woman and her money. And they might be strangers. You know, like this was a scam that was sometimes perpetrated on single women with money. There seems to have been a lot of anxiety about single women with money in the Roman Empire. Yeah, I would say so. Very, very interesting. And for Apuleius... It is interesting that the courts really honed in on him and there are these accusations of black magic. And he does seem to have been very involved in the mystery cults of that era. So some of the accusations kind of parallel those. And he's like, hey, I'm a philosopher. I'm not a magician. But if I was a magician, I would definitely send the dead after you to eat your entrails. But good thing I'm not a magician, right? In the the trial documents that we have is just fascinating. So he's the one who wrote, I think it's the um, Apologia by Apuleius. And again, it's like, is this exactly what he said in the trial? Probably not. He probably zhuzhed it a little bit after the fact. But it's it's a really wild ride. And it's a really fascinating look at magic in the ancient world. There's this discussion about a fish and like he bought a fish. So we see using that as a part of a love spell. But it's it's really interesting. And you really see his personality emerge from that. But the Golden Ass is a super fun ride. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um, but it tells the story of this the young nobleman, Lucius, who is turned into the form of an ass by a witch in Thessaly, I think. And all of the adventures he goes on trying to get turned back. And the Cupid and Psyche myth appears about halfway through the story it ends up taking up like a significant amount of the novel but it's told by this elderly woman who serves as a cook to this group of bandits and she tells it to this young woman named karate who has been taken captive by the bandits she's been like ripped away from her wedding celebrations for a beloved and she is absolutely terrified And so the nurse tells her the story as like a way of like, things are going to work out. Things are going to be okay. Look at what happened to this girl's psyche. And this great phrase where Lucius, who is in the form of an ass, wishes he had human hands to write down the story. This like neat little story within a story. I've always, I had been curious about whether Apuleius had, um, made up the story himself or if he had drawn on pre-existing elements. And it seems like there was an Eros and Psyche myth in the ancient world that predates Apuleius. There's a fair amount of artistic evidence that we have that is centuries before the myth was written down. But I think scholarly consensus is that he really took pre-existing elements and put his own stamp on them because the story as it's relayed in The Golden Ass, it just, it fits with his themes a little too perfectly with these ideas of the ascent of the soul and of different trials that eventually purify you of baser instincts. As modern readers, you know, I certainly did. Like, I would take that as canon, you know, because it comes from the ancient world, but it comes from Apuleius and the Golden Ass, and that is basically it, except for some artwork. That is blowing my mind right now. Psyche was one of those characters I really wanted to put in Women of Myth, but, um, you know, it's world mythology, and we had our our quota of of Greek uh, women. Really because she gets a real heroine's journey, and she gets to grow, and you get to see her as this fully formed character. And I think Part of the reason that her story holds so well is because, you know, what Apuleius does in his source material is he weaves it all together in ways that when you look at the mythology of someone like Atalanta, she's very different in different places. Um, Her story is super different. That leaves more room for interpretation. But these are the real two women, with the exception of Ariadne, who get really good stories where they get to be active and doing things. And, you know, I just always love coming back to these retellings. Yeah, exactly. And it's it is wild that to have only one text relating a story. So a little bit of a spoiler alert. Set my second novel, which is currently in editing stages, Medea is a major character in that. And she shows up in like a dozen ancient sources, and they're often very, very different. 
different portrayals of her, different emphasis on her personality, but to only have one source, it is interesting. But I think it's also important to remember that these ancient sources were not eyewitness reporting. These were often oral traditions that ended up being written down centuries after they had been told. There were regional variations, probably. So I I think it's dangerous to approach it with the sort of textual literacy, uh, literal textual approach that like really derives more from Christianity than anything that the ancients would have recognized. It kind of hadn't occurred to me like coming from I'm I'm not Christian myself, but coming from a Western tradition that is Christianized, you know, the idea that this was in the text and the text is the text is written in stone. The text the text is verbatim. Like that's the that's the real thing. Like that whole concept could be a Christian conceit or at least not limited to Christianity, but it could be a part of Christianity. Yeah. And there's also like there's Christian practice and then there's the ambient effect on the culture which like unfortunately can loop in people who are not Christian themselves. And she's very, very relatable and she makes mistakes. You know, she's in love, but she's also, she has fear. You know, she doesn't really know this person. And one of the interesting things about her, about this story, and then about like sort of the mystery cults of Persephone, like, and Demeter, is like part of the way in which Roman women in particular were sort of like, initiated into these mysteries had to do with like their marriages and when they were going to be married they were sort of told the story of the abduction of Persephone which is not the best story to tell but the idea that like it's okay that you're being stolen from your mother's house like maybe you'll be with a good guy and it'll be great and everything will work out and you can see that this is sort of a further extension of that yeah and you can like see that the sense of catharsis that they were probably trying to give the young women, but it, it is interesting in the way that the Eros and Psyche story is framed in The Golden Ass is very, very similar to that. But I think there is something very relatable about the idea of these two figures in a darkened room. They don't really know each other, but they're starting to fall for each other. Isn't there a dating show that's also that? There's some, there's like Love is Blind, which like one of my friends watches. And I'm like, I have less than zero interest in that. I'm sorry. Oh, my goodness. I watch Love is Blind. It is ridiculous. I love terrible TV. I'm not a reality show girly. I don't know. You know what? It came out during the pandemic when there was just nothing. So now I'm just... I just have to keep watching because it came out during the pandemic. And I'm like, I'm just like, there's this part of my brain that finds comfort in it. But um, yes, essentially, Jenny, it's two people who meet across a wall. They never see each other. And they just kind of fall in love with each other through talking to each other. I mean, maybe a few couples will turn out like Psyche and Eros. (laughs) Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters, with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard, it's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. You alluded to this before. Um, Psyche and Eros is told from dual points of view. And what was it like getting into the head of the god of love? 
Oh, yeah. I So in the earlier drafts, it was Psyche's character that came forward more strongly. And for writing her, I was really interested in zooming into kind of the bones of the myth where you have this young princess who um, receives this message from a, a monster, goes to a mountaintop, her, the people of her city follow her weeping. And in, in the source text, she turns to them and is basically like, stop weeping for me. This is my choice. This is what I was born for. And gives this like speech that shows a lot of character. And then... She goes against what her husband eventually, or what her husband asks, and brings a lamp into their uh, darkened bedroom, which is what triggers their separation. And then she has to go on to do the labors and the underworld descents. And I kind of wanted to zoom in on that for her character and make her into kind of this hero girl archetype, which also puts her on not equal footing, but makes her stand up a little more to Eros, who is a god and a mortal. Um, but for his character, he he really didn't come through very strongly in the initial drafts. My editors were kind of like, hey, can you can you like give us a little more here? But it was zooming in on Anne Carson's Eros the Bittersweet and this idea of Eros as glucopicron or sweet bitter that got my my creative cylinders firing. Um, and this idea of someone who was very mischievous, who was very contrary, but sort of had a, a sweetness to him as well. There are a lot of ancient texts that depict Eros as very youthful and even childlike. I didn't really want to focus on that too much. I don't think a romance with one partner as like a childlike participant is very cute or sexy. But sort of that contrary nature I think was interesting and I also there there were a few different accounts of Eros like how old Eros is where how Eros was born but I was really interested in Hesiod who presented him as more of an um, a primordial deity and I also zoomed in on the philosophy of Empedocles which um, his idea was that the universe is organized around two primordial principles of eros and eris, which is to say desire and discord, like the forces that bring things together and the forces that push things apart. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating. So I decided to give eros an origin story at the very beginning of the world where the primordial deities were emerging from chaos. And I also gave him a twin sister in the form of Eris of the Golden Apple Trojan War fate. I love her so much. <laughs> oh, she was so fun to write. She, I mean, I love a good female villain. I love like the power you can get there, the slyness. It's, it's, she was very fun to write. But also that's just her nature. She's like, fundamentally, this is what I do. Yeah, exactly. And that, that, that conflict between who the gods are and what their capacities are was something I was very interested in. Because if you imagine this primordial deity sort of hatching into this unformed world that's just earth and sky, like knowing he has these capacities, but he hasn't chosen them. He doesn't really understand what they are. He doesn't really have the guidance of a family or a city or a set of morals to sort of structure his life. What is that like? Um, and that's really a question that guided me as well. And also this conflict of if you're the god of desire and your counterpart is the goddess of discord, what's that like? You're diametrically opposed, but at the same time, you are sort of yoked for eternity. It's just about turning that myth on its head. Like Psyche was supposed to be fed to a monster, uh, but instead you you make her this active character, this monster hunter. What was it like reworking the, this myth and giving Psyche a lot more agency than she has in the original story? That's a lot of fun. Because I think if you if you look at the structure of the original myth, a narrative emerges that looks a lot like the narratives of the mostly male heroes we get in Greco-Roman mythology of this heroic speech, of this confrontation, of the labors. And 
I dove in a lot to the secondary literature around the myth. And starting roughly in the 1970s, there was this recognition among scholars that like, hey, actually, Psyche's trajectory looks a lot like that of Heracles, where there is this there's this error, this mistake that has to be repaired. There are labors that have to be undertaken. And I thought that was really interesting. And so that's something I wanted to hone in on more. She doesn't trash the Oracle of Delphi twice. <laughs> that's right. That bar is underground. <laughs> She's like, yeah, exactly. That's It's not to be less murdery than Heracles, but, you know. But yeah, so I was really interested in zooming in on that. And the original myth is, like, very, very ambiguous about its origins. Like, in a certain city, there was a game. There's not really any description. It doesn't give us a lot for setting. But I, I, so starting with that seed of, like, what if Psyche's trajectory did follow this hero narrative? I tweaked the prophecy a little bit from that she would marry a monster, which is in the source text, that she would conquer a monster. That's actually a bit inspired by, um, so at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, there's a display of a bit of ancient pottery that shows Paris taking Helen and he's grabbing her by the hand. And the description is like, in a gesture of conquest or marriage. Went there with a friend and he was just like, hey, do, who, who do you think wrote that? So that was something that kind of lodged in my brain as I was writing it. And the fluidity of conquest versus marriage for the ancients, it's the sort of thing you could imagine where gathered in the cave of the oracle with the fumes coming up from the crack in the earth, this woman on a tripod surrounded by these priests who are supposed to interpret her words. It's the kind of thing you could imagine getting a little tweaked or twisted in being relayed to others. What happens when that happens? Well, now you have this divine proclamation. You have new parents who have this little baby in their arms. And of course, they want to listen to the oracle. So they dive into that. And that also, that little tweak also gave me the opportunity to bring in one of my favorite characters from ancient mythology, which is Atalanta, who is one of very, very few, so few women who get to have that hero trajectory for herself. And I bring her in as Psyche's mentor, and she was just such a joy to write. We were talking to Jenny Saint about Atalanta, and she said the same thing. She said just getting to write about Atalanta and this woman who roams the fields and goes on adventures was such a joy as opposed to like you know writing about you know some of the other stories like Electra and Clytemnestra and even Ariadne and Phaedra I'm like yeah I get that she's just fun she just goes out and lives her life in the way in which she thinks is best yeah and also the role of love and desire in the life of Atlanta is very interesting which I think you really got out with the PDA Lions episode where like she is this independent, self-contained woman, but also has like, there is this undercurrent of sexual liberation as well, where she has a very close, mutually respectful relationship with Meliager, eventually marries Hippomenes slash Melanion, depending on the sources that you go with. There's like a mention, she might have had a child by Ares. The whole PDA Lions episode where they just couldn't, they couldn't keep their hands off each other in the cave. And the goddess was like, what are you doing? Like, gross. Take this elsewhere. Take this outside. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's like, that's their curse. (laughs) Their curse is to be lions. You just get to frolic and hunt and fuck all the time. Like, honestly, for Atalanta, like, that's not a curse. That's like, that's her best life. (laughs) I actually, um, I had the privilege of reading an advanced copy of Atlanta by Jennifer Saint. Love it. I found this meme that I sent to Jenny Saint, which is like, one of those dialogue things is like, witch, I'm going to turn you into a frog. Me, chilling on a leaf, experiencing happiness for the first time in my life, enjoying the sunshine. That feels very much like Atlanta. She's like, turn me into a four-legged killing machine. This is fantastic. That's what I've been trying to be this whole time. (laughs) I'm a big cat. This is great. (laughs) 
I do think she'd want to be a bear. I think that would be her. Bears are so kind of big and lumbery, though. Like, I really see her as like a sleek cat who's who's just really powerful and has advanced, like, amazing senses and just pounces on dinner. And I see the lion for her, personally. <laughs> I think it works out, but I just like the feeling on a leaf, experiencing happiness for the first time in my life, not having to deal with sexism. Like, it's love this for you, Atalanta. The myth of Psyche and Eros has so many twists and turns. What did you look forward to including in your novel and what were you anxious to cover? So I think one of the things that I was a little bit anxious about covering was the arrival of Psyche to Eros's house and the initiation of their relationship. And in Apuleius, that's very much like Eros is the one who drags her there. They have sex on the first night. It's not really clear in the source text how into it she is. And I don't love that. I don't really want to write about that in a story. So the way I tackled that was it's more of a prank from Eros's friend Zephyrus that brings Psyche to Eros's house. That Zephyrus is the god of the West Wind. He's a little annoyed with Eros about something that readers will find out later. And so he is the mechanism by which Psyche arrives at the house. And it's very much like, oh no, this woman you are entangled in love curse with is suddenly in your home. Figure that out, Eros. It's like I've been trying to avoid this the whole time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. this, is, this is the opposite of what I want. But the gods are always like playing pranks on each other being very literal in their interpretation of giving each other what they want, like all of that sort of thing. Well, they have nothing else to do with their time. <laughs> that, that was really something that stuck out to me was how boring it must be to be immortal. And coming from a big family that plays a lot of pranks on each other when we get together, I totally get it. Like the amount of times um, we've taken a joke just that little bit too far. <laughs> yep. And it's it's the sort of thing like sometimes you think it's very funny and then you like see the look on their face. And you're like, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> yeah. And like I, I come from a very big extended Irish American, Italian American family. Like, you know, our family gatherings are like 50 plus people. And there's always one person who, you know, you're teasing and then you're like, oh, oh, no, the whole group went too far. Rain it back. Just rain it back. <laughs> rain it in. And then that person remembers this for the next 20 years and they will take it back on you over and over. And you just you kind of get that with the Olympians, right? Like they tease each other. They're always tricking each other. And they also never forget anything. Yeah. And like scaling that over millennia where there is kind of no end to it was that that was also something that was really interesting to me so the the advent of psyche and eros especially the physical and romantic aspects of their relationship was it was difficult because again i wanted to draw them both as well-rounded people um i didn't really want to make psyche a victim i didn't want to make eros a violent perpetrator. So thinking of a courtship that was a little bit more spread out and involved more actual relating and fondness of each other. But as for parts I was really excited to cover, the trials of Psyche, where the goddess Aphrodite gives her these impossible tasks to complete. I mean, I, I see that as one of the really, one of the profound hearts of the story, like one of those uh, major points of the narrative that you can't change. And so playing around with those, representing those on a craft level, trying to keep the tension of that when you have this like task completed, task completed sort of cycle in the story was very interesting just from a writing perspective. What character surprised you most while you were writing the novel? I think Eros was one of them because again in the early drafts he was a bit underdeveloped. I had to I really wanted to dive into the secondary literature around him to flesh out his character. But what ended up emerging on the page was this character who was like he's really he's in his house by the sea cliffs. He doesn't want to be bothered. He's just hanging out with his cats and peacocks. It is also sort of a seed of compassion there. Like he sees the impact of the arrows of the arrows of desire that he fires out on mortal people and especially mortal women and the suffering that can entail from that. And he really doesn't like it. He 
doesn't really like the idea of making these little mortal creatures suffer. So he very much surprised me. Yeah, I think he was the biggest one. Also, Atalanta. It was really when I included her in the earliest drafts that things started coming together because she provides such a reflection for my interpretation of Psyche. But just the the character that came from there, like this very independent forest woman who also has these love affairs. Um, someone who is very kind of laconic and a little bit grumpy sometimes, but also profoundly caring for the people close to her. Yeah, that's really interesting because Atalanta, like Psyche, is a heroine with a love life, you know, which isn't always afforded to women who are main characters in these stories. Well, there's only three. There's Atalanta, Ariadne. Her love life is tragic until Dionysus, which, let's be honest, all of our love lives are tragic until Dionysus. And then you have Psyche. Otherwise, like every other woman I can think of, you know, you've got Medea, but that is just tragic in general, you know, (laughs) and then she's just marrying for power grabs. And yeah, but most women, their love lives are like the cause of their constant bane. Yeah, it's just like, you know, the more agency a woman has, the less she's allowed to have a love life that she chooses, seems like to me possibly a broad sweeping statement but no i think there there is something to that and i i don't know why but it's danae who's the mother of perseus who comes to mind where like her father locked her in a tower because there was this prophecy that her son would overthrow him so like already she's cut off from society her choices are curtailed zeus comes in as the golden rain impregnates her and suddenly she has this kid like she's never really had agency or the ability to make her own choices and now she is saddled with a semi-divine infant they're set on the ocean like eventually come to lights but it's it's yeah, the the choices that are curtailed, the lack of agency. I just imagine the personal frustration of like when you've never had a lick of freedom in your life and suddenly have an infant to care for too. Or, you know, you've got Dido who was running this successful city, was living her best life. Venus comes along and uh, an Eros in the story and she falls for Aeneas, who's totally unworthy of her. And, you know, that is the effect of one of those arrows. You know, she is just a mess by the time he leaves to the point where, unfortunately, she she takes her own life and curses the Roman Empire or the Roman Republic. Sorry, it's not the empire yet. Ancient stories are so interesting because you get these fascinating fragments like Dido rules a city. And it's just it's so fascinating to me. And it's also like, again, if you are taking as one of your starting points the ambiguity of story and the unreliability of myth, like what was the source that was drawing from? You know, is it a reflection of the writer's own bias that you eventually have this powerful woman falling for this like very kind of like dingus of a man? Sorry, Aeneas, but he is a dingus. He's a Mary Sue dingus. (laughs) Total Mary Sue throughout the entire poem (laughs) but like you know what's the what's the source behind that was it the roman writer's own bias to be like well this power she totally fell for him hard and offed herself when he sailed away and it's like what do you take from that as a woman reading this in that time period it's like okay number one my my message that i'm taking from it is that falling in love is terrible and you should never be in a relationship with a man and if you get to be single You can rule your own city and do your own thing, but you have to be absolutely, resolutely celibate and single. Or, I mean, maybe Dido had lovers, I don't know, but like officially single at least. Or the idea of women having agency in love will ruin you. So theoretically, she chose Aeneas, but then she was shot by an arrow, by arrows. So did she really choose that? So the idea of agency is just really muddled in that story. And that is to make women seem like they are irrational and cannot control themselves once they fall in love with someone. They are just useless beings. And that is Augustan propaganda to the extreme. But I mean, it's also in the stories as well. And I wonder if it's, if like that's sort of a knee-jerk response to this idea of a woman who founded a city, who rules a city quite capably, it seems like. I think that's one reason like these woman-centric retellings of Greek mythology are really finding traction now is like we're left with such interesting fragments of like Psyche as this young mortal girl who completes these trials of Dido as this woman who rules a city. I'm so fascinated by the depiction of Circe in the Odyssey as this like very sexually powerful witch on her island. It's 
really interesting stuff. Which character did you most enjoy writing? Um, and which character did you least enjoy writing about? Atlanta, I think, was my favorite. Um, Zephyrus was surprisingly fun as well as sort of like the best friend archetype. But someone who is like mischievous to the extreme, who loves pranks, who loves this kind of hyperbole thing, but also has this center of real heartbreak and care for a mortal lover that he lost and deep loyalty to those that he does call his friends. Um, as for characters that were difficult to write, uh, Agamemnon is not, he doesn't have a huge role in the book, but he does have a pivotal one. And I really hated him. I read Iphigenia at Aulis too early and I was like, fuck this guy. I had the privilege of meeting Maya Dean, who I, has been on your show before. And like our first meeting, I was like, Maya, you made me like Agamemnon in your book. And she looks at me and she's like, you made me hate Agamemnon <laughs> <laughs> that goddess sing is one of my favorite books of of the year that it came out it was so so good and maya is such an amazing writer and so knowledgeable about the history she was my conversation partner for my book launch and she just she made it such a wonderful experience <laughs> all the women of myth authors that we've had on the show so far the same question uh what goddess heroine or monster do you most identify with and why see i mean i think this is a little bit more idealized but i've always really loved the goddess artemis like the independence living in the woods with your nymphs chasing animals um and also the wrathfulness that she's allowed to express like that whole um why am I blanking on his name? The guy who sees her bathing, she turns him in. Akaton? Yeah, yeah. But also like the role she had in the lives of women where like she, there was that uh, celebration at Browron where young girls who were to be married, they got to dress up as bears. And like, you just imagine this party with like all these preteen girls and guiding women through childbirth. I, I do, I really love Artemis. Yeah, they found all these toys. I think it's at Browron and uh, other places because like both boys and girls were like under Artemis's protection until they hit puberty. And when they hit puberty, they would like give Artemis their toys, like their childhood things as a way of like a show of like growing up and girls would still remain under her protection in some ways. Some of them would go into the protection of, I guess, Hera or other goddesses. But the boys would give over their things, too. And I was just like, that's so fascinating. Yeah. And you also just imagine psychologically that kind of coming of age ceremony of literally offering up the things of your childhood to be able to move into your adult life more easily. I offer up my Playmobiles. <laughs> Barbies. <laughs> my Legos. My Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. Here, here it all is. Um, I also really love the figure of Ariadne too, who like, you know, growing up in this I just imagine very dark and insular family in Crete. The idea that she's the, there's this idea in, um, I think some of the linear B texts that refer to the mistress of the labyrinth. This idea of her as the one who like guides you out of the darkness, the whole bullshit with Theseus, but ending up with Dionysus as your husband. Just, ugh, what a dream. I mean, he's my favorite. And yeah, the, the fiction project I'm working on is about Dionysus and Ariadne. And there is so much we don't know about Dionysus and his worship. There's so much interesting stuff about how what is in the mythology correlates with the potential of ancient Minoan religions that actually were about Dionysus and Ariadne being his, I guess, the personification of a priestess of Dionysus from this ancient religion that we actually know nothing about now or very little about. And just like chasing the threads of that back. It's so fascinating. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm I'm very fond of this um Hungarian scholar Karl Karinyi who got very into Dionysus but was like very interested in that question of like the myths that we have are not the whole story. What are the histories that they point to that haven't been written down? 
And that man loved him some Dionysus. Mm -hmm. Jen did such good work on that when she did her episodes on Dionysus, which we did ages ago. But I was just so intrigued by this idea that all of the mythology that we have about Dionysus is, or much of it, is based on this much more ancient, like basically mythologizing a much more ancient tradition. You know, I think one of the things when I was doing those episodes that I made me really fall in love with him is there were so many people who worshipped him who were not the people you would think of, particularly his role in enslaved people's uprisings. He was the god of enslaved people, of dissidents of Mithridates, he went against Rome, but also Spartacus, he went against Rome. He's the, you know, a god of women and in addition to theater and mania and frenzy and sexual agency out in the woods with wine. I mean, he's all good things, you know, fertility. There are some mythologies where he's a sacrificial king who's ripped apart and then brought back together. Sometimes he's Persephone's brother in a weird, creepy way. Sometimes he's her son's stepbrother in a weird, creepy way. But he's just absolutely fascinating. And the way in which his mythology eventually gets co-opted by the Orphics, who are definitely dealing with Christianity of it all. And then the Ariadne of it all and that older Minoan culture and what we know, what we don't know, how she works, her agency. Because, like, you know, there's a certain thing wherein, you know, you see her transgressing in quotation marks with Theseus and she winds up stranded on this island. But really, she doesn't have any consequences for it. It's like, oh, I got away from my dad, who's kind of not the best. My mom, who birthed a monster. (laughs) And I'm living on an island. I got away from Theseus, who sucks. (laughs) Like... Who sucks? I feel bad for my sister, I guess. (laughs) And also, I mean, if you look at the Ariadne story, she, in some ways, she kills the Minotaur without raising a finger because she's the one who lets Theseus into the into the labyrinth. She's the one who navigates it for him. Like, there's so much there that you're like, what's is this a veil over? Some other, I I don't know, what are the other versions of this that have been lost? What are the histories that it's pointing to? And who is she exactly? Because there's so much we don't know about her. And there's a lot we don't know about the Minoan culture. But like, we know that they worship bulls. We know that they bull leapt. I mean, I like to think that Ariadne had like a real, she's much more of a like a tomboy adventurous, you know, uh, not a princess of a princess. But also like on her mother's side, she's the granddaughter of a titan. And on her father's side, she's the granddaughter of an Olympian. Like, she's not just a mortal girl. There's, I actually have a short story about Ariadne focusing on that as her, like, this very disaffected, angry priestess in this family that's sort of has uneasy alliances. And I, I like, write a little bit of it now and then, and then I leave it. But she, I find her so fascinating. I want to read that story. Oh, the only thing I wanted to ask you about was the Persephone's beauty of it all. One of Psyche's labors, as given to her from Aphrodite, which I hate this labor in ways I can't express, is Aphrodite wants Psyche to go down to the underworld and get some of Persephone's beauty, because Aphrodite and Persephone have a kind of like beauty off in like rivalry in the mythology. At one point in time, they both are vying for the same dude, Adonis. So my question to you is, how did you undertake handling what is a misogynistic beauty trope there of Psyche needing to go and take someone else's beauty as part of a labor for the goddess of love? So I, I did sort of rationalize it as beauty cream because I was like, I jar of beauty is a little confusing there. But it's also interesting because Aphrodite, a lot of the tasks that Aphrodite assigns to Psyche are these like very shallow, silly things like sorting the grain. Like, why would you do that? That sounds maddening. But I did sort of love the idea of this very epic catabasis or descent into the underworld for ultimately a very frivolous and silly thing. But I was also really interested in that confrontation between Psyche and Persephone, because in many ways, they're foils for each other. Like these are both young women who are unwillingly whisked away to their husband's home. Psyche finds happiness, Persephone... I think finds something else. I think finds power. Definitely, I don't view her in Hades as a love story. That's just my perspective. But I was really interested in the confrontation of these two figures and of Persephone as this power in the underworld who was very cold and calculating, but also did have some feeling to her as well. Like, I, I don't think you can rule the underworld just as a tyrant. 
So writing that confrontation between them was really the the heart of the story to me. And again, this is all kind of getting into spoiler territory. I don't know, maybe we have a spoiler disclaimer on the, the podcast, but in the source text, Psyche opens the jar because she just she just wants to put a little, a little beauty on herself before she sees Eros again. Uh, and of course, this unlocks a curse. Psyche falls into the dead sleep. But for my version, I wanted to make a parallel to the moment where Eros cuts himself with the arrow and falls for Psyche, where Psyche is making her way with this jar and she stumbles and the cover slips off. So like highlighting this moment of error as a very pivotal moment in characters' lives and in, in the plot more broadly. It's really interesting, this, the, the idea that like your life can be completely upended by um, a very small and unpredictable mistake. Yeah, which is something that crops up perennially throughout Greco-Roman mythology, that these like tiny errors or tiny moments where something could have been done differently, that shapes everything that is to come. And when you think about how there were no antibiotics then, possibly this is a real world factor that people were thinking about. (laughs) So Luna, what are you working on next? What's your follow up? I've I've talked a little bit about it on other, my editors have been like, and I try to um, preface it with like, Things might change. We're still in the editing process. We'll see what how, what happens in the end. Yeah. So, uh, the Argonautica by Apollonius of Rhodes, the the um, story of Jason and his Argonauts. I've been very interested in that, but also a close reading of that text. And scholars have remarked on this for decades. The hero at the heart of it isn't really Jason. It's more Medea. She's this powerful princess of Colchis, and she's the one who helps Jason overcome the trials posed by her father Aetes, who gets the golden fleece away from the dragon that guards it. And she's such a fascinating character in it, because she's almost like this Sailor Moon-esque magical girl, where she has these incredible powers, but also is a young woman in love and with all the emotional volatility that comes from that. So I was very interested to write about her. And I also got into it from the perspective of looking at what I think are sort of the underdog heroes in the Argonautica. Uh, The second of which is actually Jason, which uh, it was my editors were like, hey, would you be willing to write part of this from Jason's perspective? And at first I was like, I would rather rip out my own toenails. (laughs) But the more I dove into Jason, the more interesting I found him. When he gets the patronage of the goddess Hera, it's not through any feat of strength or conquering a hero or his own divine heritage. It's that he helps her. He carries her in the form of an old woman across a river and in the process loses one of his sandals. And Hera hates his enemies, so there's a little bit of that. But it did intrigue me that he came to her attention for this very soft moment. Um, And there are all these other moments throughout the Argonautica where Jason really does not live up to the archetype of a hero, where he's like the last to go to battle. He has all of these speeches. When he gets the golden fleece, he prances around like a young girl. It's in in the source text. So I was like, all right, someone who's like a little bit effeminate, maybe a little bit idealistic. That's that's an interesting Jason for me. The third perspective in the novel is Atalanta. So I get to write about her youth and her background of my interpretation of her in Psyche and Eros. So it's kind of like a prequel in a sense. It's a little bit of a prequel. Yeah, I mean, Eros and Psyche do make cameo appearances in it, but it's it's really focused around those three characters and their trajectory. And again, this is still coming together in the draft, so I don't know how it'll be in the end, but it's also exploring the idea of meaning versus meaninglessness, because the object at the heart of the Argonautica, the Golden Fleece, it's really just a fleece. There there are all these other modern interpretations of like, maybe it heals or brings rain, but in the source text, it is just a fancy fleece from this divine ram that was sent down to save two kids. And so this idea of kind of the hollowness of the object at the heart 
really intrigued me. And all of the three characters, Jason, Medea, and Atalanta, at different points in all of their lives, everything falls through. They don't necessarily get what they want, and they have to figure out something uh, beyond that. I know there was a retelling of Jason and the Argonauts. I can't remember who wrote it. I remember Monink was talking about it. She's got a video on it on her channel about why she really liked this retelling because Jason comes off as essentially like you said. He has all of these huge personalities. He doesn't do a lot. It's kind of his job to keep these people from killing each other and also getting this quest completed. And he's not who you think he's going to be. I mean, obviously, I don't like Jason for media reasons. But I suppose when he's younger, like there's an interesting character to uncover there, someone who's unsure of himself, who's surrounded by Heracles and Orpheus and Atalanta and all these huge personalities who probably don't necessarily get along, having to bring them all together as like a boat of unlikely rivals, you know? Yeah, it's a very interesting thing, because at that point, Heracles is really... He's kind of past his prime. He's done a lot of the labors. And I, I've been really inspired by the artistic tradition of tired Heracles. I call it like all these statues and depictions where he's just like, <laughs> like so done with all of this. He's exhausted. <laughs> yeah, he's like, if I just stopped killing people, I wouldn't have to keep doing these missions. <laughs> wouldn't it be great, Heracles? <laughs> Maybe the problem is you. Yep, consider. <laughs> What's the common denominator in all of these, Heracles? Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been so incredible. Thank you so much for having me on it. I love the show and it is such a delight to be able to meet you both and to have my own episode on it. It's absolutely a delight to have you. The book is incredible. Highly recommended. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Luna, where can people find you on social media? So I am McNamara Luna on Twitter. Yeah, I'm, I'm still on Twitter. I'm one of the, the holdouts. And we're not calling it the other name because the other name is stupid. Oh, yeah. But I don't. It's still Twitter. Sorry, Elon Musk. I'm also on Facebook as Luna McNamara as well. And you can find my Instagram, Luna McNamara Writer also. Uh, and if you want another option, Luna McNamara Writer is my website as well. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show, and thank you all for listening. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week. 